Welcome to the IoT Security Podcast, powered by Phosphorus Cybersecurity, your source for securing the extended Internet of Things. Join the conversation with your hosts, Brian Contos and John Vecchi. Well, hello, everybody. You're listening to the IoT Security Podcast, live on Phosphorus Radio. I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos, and we have a really amazing guest today. I'm so uh, happy to have her on the show. Welcome, Tammy Hawkins. Thank you so much, guys. I'm so glad to be here. Welcome, Tammy. Tammy, it's it's probably been a little over a year since we last, well, maybe even two years, actually, since we uh, were last on a podcast together. But uh, for our listeners that didn't hear the last one, maybe you could give a little bit of background about yourself, how you came up, how you got into cybersecurity, and what exactly did you do today? Absolutely. You know, I've been so lucky to live a varied career. Thank you to cybersecurity. I started in information security about 20 years ago, working as an analyst and a test automation engineer. And I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri. In 2008, I interviewed at MasterCard as a business analyst for a financial risk scoring artificial intelligence system. And that job changed my life. I was at MasterCard for over a decade, and as you might imagine, uh, working for the second largest payment company in the world, there were uh, a lot of different opportunities that uh, (laughs) I got to observe in the world that threat actors will put forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had the opportunity in working in identity and verification, fighting some of the the best fraudsters in the world, and getting to create security products that were so cool that people wanted to pay for it. You know, they made amazing revenue. They were so strong. By 2019, I was in Dublin, Ireland. I had, at that point, made it in my career at MasterCard to being vice president of engineering of cybersecurity functions and cyber intelligence functions. And then I wanted to do something radically different. I went into gaming. I went to Activision Blizzard for a couple of years. That's the last time that I talked to you, Brian, was yeah, when I was yeah. working on. We, we were working on some anti-toxicity uh, solutions, helping people play nice, play fair in chat yeah. and uh, verbal interactions with each other, which is really fun in the gaming world. And today, I serve as the director of cybersecurity and fraud at Intuit. I've been with Intuit for a couple of years, helping protect their small business segment. So, and I'm now in California. So I've Mm -hmm. gone from St. Louis to Ireland to California, (laughs) all all thanks to cybersecurity and information technology. So I feel extremely fortunate to be in this field. And it is certainly a field that keeps giving more and more opportunity. It seems like every time we turn around, threat actors are finding a new way to take advantage of some vulnerability, whether that vulnerability is in your application, your infrastructure, or your humans. So mm-hmm. um, I just want to say thank you to you guys for having a podcast like this. I think it's incredibly important that we as security professionals continue to share our knowledge because, you know, everyone needs to know how to be a little safer. So I'm really looking forward to uh, talking more. Yeah, no, it's such you you have such a great background. I love the fact that you've touched so many different types of business. I mean, I've never worked for a credit card company. I've never worked for a gaming company, but I expect they're is about as opposite as you could get in term <laughs> in term of operations. But I do wonder, you know, you you mentioned working with fraud and boy, 
just just mm. all the different types of security risk compounded by all the different types of fraud that you have to deal with when working uh, in security for a credit card company. I remember when I was in Brazil, I lived in Brazil for a couple of years and I was working from s- some banks there and skimming was a really big deal. And as you know, people would go up to ATM machines and they'd basically stick these devices on top of the machines that look, they're perfectly colored and perfectly fit. And uh, people would swipe their cards, type in their pin, but it was actually a computer on top of it that was recording it all and and sending it off. Did you ever get involved in sort of that that physical side and securing it? Because I just remember they had these awesome labs where they're taking this stuff apart and seeing, you know, do we weigh it? Does the does the machine weigh a, a different mm-hmm. amount now? And all these things. Did did you work on that at all? So I didn't personally put my hands on them. What I helped protect, though, were, were the signals that would come over our network um, uh, because we we would have different signals that came from those because they're still credit card processors, right? It, they can be just sniffers, but some of them are also processing credit card transactions at the time to get as much money as they can at the time. Wow. And it's, it's amazing. As you said, they can be incredibly thin, like very imperceivable to the eye. I am very known, uh, one of the, the most common places for skimmers today um, that folks should be aware of are gas station uh, mm-hmm. gas station pumps. Those are the most prevalent where folks put skimmers as well as ATMs. I thought um, you were going to say the Vegas airport during Black Hat and DEF CON, but okay. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes, absolutely. You should be uh, paranoid of everything at Black Hat. <laughs> So I, I'm very well known to any time I walk up to a gas station pump or an ATM, I'm jiggling things before I, I insert my card into it <laughs> uh-huh. because it's so imperceivable to the eye. Yeah. It looks just like, you know, your normal device that you would put your card into. But unfortunately, when you stick your card in that device, either it will do a real time transaction to try to take advantage, you know, and get as much money at the time they can, or they're sniffing. They have a little radio very nearby where you've just stuck your card in and they are grabbing every single card number of every single individual that slides it through. And, you know, I did battle an attack when when I was at MasterCard in relation to that, they would gather all of these credit card numbers. And unfortunately, not only can you buy the skimmers online, you can also buy online the equipment to then produce credit cards. So they would produce fake credit cards, they would then hire people um, to go to ATMs and to to drain them of money for any cards that would work, or they would go online and buy things and resell them. So those were some of the patterns that we would look for. We would understand legitimate purchasing behavior versus what does this illegitimate purchasing behavior look like? And the mm-hmm. artificial intelligence system that I had the amazing opportunity to work on could detect in real time and block them from being able to process these transactions. Because it's all about, as you know, return on investment for these criminals, as wild as it is to to take a step back and reflect, they're they're all doing it to get a return on investment. They run their their fraud rings like tiny businesses. So the more yeah. that you can impact their scale, both in how much they have to invest to conduct the the attack successfully, as well as reducing the scale by which they can make money, you know, you chase them away to to hopefully other places and not your network or not your products. You'll never get rid of all of them, but hopefully you make it harder for them to do damage and they go do damage elsewhere. Yeah. Wow. I mean, uh, I think looking at your background, I mean, really, I think a podcast like this is really built for a guest like you. Because you, you think you've been in different industries and you're not only looking at kind of the security side, the tools, uh, the systems and software and things, but actually the, the threats themselves, the threat actors, the exploits, 
all of those as you as you step back and look at you know the mastercard your your touch on the gaming environment and now things like into it how have the threats changed i mean are you still chasing the same types of actors are you still dealing with similar types of threats or how have the threats changed based on you know the different environments and companies and the environments that you're working in it's a great question and having the fortune of being in this industry now for two decades it is mind-boggling the difference, um, mm. the scale and the sophistication by which these threat actors are performing today is radically different than what we saw a decade ago. You know, a decade mm -hmm. ago, you saw a lot of what we affectionately call script kiddies who were playing around kind of trying to figure out how to do things, often buying things or using things from other people that they trusted would work. Today, it's an enterprise. Like, literally, mm -hmm. there are threat actors that are standing up small companies, and they are hiring people and training them how to be the best at fraud. They will create campaigns, literal adverts saying, hey, want to make money at home quickly? Sounds legitimate. Mm -hmm. You'll show up to this, this interview. They'll have you read a script. The script is pretending to be a tech support individual. Mm -hmm. And they have you read the script and they say, be really convincing. We really want to talk you, you know, we really want the person to follow the steps that you're guiding them with. What they're doing is they're training them for tech support fraud, which is really prevalent today. Yeah. Um, it comes in the form of phishing or smishing or vishing. And these folks are hitting corporates, companies that have large databases of customer relationship management type details, large telephone operating companies that have, you know, lots of phone numbers of everyone in the world, because this is a self-perpetuating cycle. They want to get more and more and more phone numbers so they mm -hmm. can send more and more phishing, vishing, smishing in the form of text phone calls. And, and ultimately, what the fraudster is trying to do is either get the target's credentials, so then they can log into your financial banking site, or they can log into whatever application that may be monetarily beneficial to them. And they also want to know your number is working. They, they want to know they have a live connection at the end. Mm -hmm. And they want to see, you know, what further fraud they could potentially conduct. And they will share once they know your number. And if they find your a target that may interact, they may share your number with other threat actors. So the guidance that I've really been giving folks is be very skeptical of any unfamiliar text message or any unfamiliar phone call that you get. You know, really double check if it's if it's a text message. Did it come from a number that you know? Did it come from an email? <laughs> it, there's a lot of threat actors that are sending fake texts via email. They'll pretend to be a reputable company that they know a lot of people use. They'll pretend to be Amazon. They'll pretend to be the United States Post Service or UPS. Yeah. And they'll ask for an immediate response or action. They'll threaten you saying, you know, you have lost money or you will lose money or we're going to immediately suspend or terminate your account they're trying to get you to interact, to know there's a live human on the other end, and then they're going to take that conversation wherever they think they can take it. What I always encourage folks to do is don't interact. You know, if you really think your Netflix account is getting ready to be suspended or terminated, take a step back, go to Netflix's original, you know, authentic website and go to their customer support there. Never give any of your details 
over a text message. Never give any of your customer details over a phone. If somebody contacted you, you don't know who's at the other end. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's such good advice. And uh, I know that like people that are, are elderly are, are really being targeted because they're, they haven't necessarily grown up with this or experienced it or, or heard about these issues. So they're going after these individuals and they, Oh, you know, if, if I don't do this, I'm going to get a, a tax lien against me or something like this. I have to send this person $20,000 or some ridiculous thing. Or yeah, I guess it does make sense that I'll go to Walmart and buy a bunch of Google Play cards to give to my tech support person. They don't yes. know. So that's, it's really sad that they're going after the most vulnerable uh, people. What I'm also seeing is there's a lot of specialization. So you have, we've, we've been in security for a couple of decades and the cyber criminals, they've They've been in cybercrime for a couple of decades. So they've gotten really, really good in their little niche areas and they've developed trust networks within different criminal organizations. And one group here is really good at carding. Another group here is really good at transactions over crypto and how to hide your funds and money laundering. And another group is great at making malware, managing botnets. And you have all these specialized groups. And I love how you you said that they run it like a business and it sure is because we were involved with a, a takedown for a very large botnet that was focused on OT systems, so SCADA devices, PLCs, basically digital devices that control physics, flow, voltage, temperature, things like that across manufacturing, power and energy, things like that, as well as some enterprise IoT stuff, the, the printers, the cameras, and some network devices, layer two switches, wireless access points. So the whole spectrum of XIoT, if you will. But it wasn't to destroy anything. They were simply installing malware. They're actually getting malware on these devices. A lot of them were Linux, some of them were Windows, some of them were VxWorks, but a lot of them were these embedded you know, smart devices, if you will. And what I thought was really interesting about this is these these massive botnets that were made up of all these disparate kind of smart devices, they are renting them out for about $30 a day. And for $30 a day, you could use this botnet to do DDoS attack, uh, phishing, uh, black hat search engine optimization, malware distribution, you, you name it, any, any type of nefarious activity, which requires a large amount of devices. But this is where it gets to the part that they operate like a business. For $100 a day, you got 24 by 7 chat tech support to assist you with whatever campaigns you're actually doing. So they're actually actually giving tech support. To, like, I really want to do a DDoS attack. And sure, for $30, I can have access to the system. But where do I start? <laughs> right. for, well, for $100 a day, you get our, our gold service. And I'm like, this is no joke. And when you start looking at the folks running these organizations, it's certainly not the Hollywood image of the high school kid in his mom's basement drinking joke cola and playing video games, although there might be some of those. These are people that oftentimes have master's degrees in computer science or finance. They're living in countries where they have safe harbor. So there's like, look, hack all you want, do all the crime you want. Don't hack in our country or any of our allies, but as long as you're doing it to other people, we don't care. We're not going to arrest you, things like that. So are you starting to see in, in your sort of day-to-day -day operations a blurring between those threat actors that are nation state actors and maybe cyber criminals and finding that a lot of the times it's, it's actually the same, same people doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I always remind people I'm paid to think about the dark things and, and I live and breathe the dark things all the time. Everything you've said is absolutely true. And unfortunately a trend that I'm also seeing increase is insider workers. 
they will <laughs> literally sense. recruit folks that are insiders in customer support already or insiders in an organization and take advantage of that, which, you know, it gets really, really scary to be able to parse what is legitimate behavior for your employee base versus illegitimate behavior so that you can protect your customers. And also the, the threat actors are attempting to always get, you know, a foothold to, to try to appear like a, an insider as well. And as you've said, it's just so much more sophisticated. Um, some of our methods to deter and protect included, you know, knowing phone numbers, knowing identity. They can rent out identity. They can rent out VOIP, you know, voice over IP type phones. I mean, you can, as you said, you can hire fraud experts to do everything for you. And if you can figure out how to get your return on investment, well, it's worth the investment if I have the the money, and often the money is illegitimate funds they're starting with anyway, so they're not that concerned if they lose uh, lose a little bit of it. So it's it's a different time to be operating in, and with that level of growing threat, companies and individuals really have to think different about risk posture, and you know know a little bit more about security that maybe we didn't always know before. And mm-hmm. it, you you said it so well in that. I love what I do because I get to protect folks. The part that breaks my heart is seeing the folks that are taken advantage of. And it's often those that are less tech savvy, those that are elderly. But I'm also going to say they also take advantage of periods in which we potentially may go through a recession or folks are having tougher times in an economic space. I'm seeing a lot of folks, like I went and got a a facial the other day and the lady, I told her I worked in fraud and she said, oh my goodness, I fell for a Bitcoin hack the other day. There are so many people that have fear of missing out relative to making money on crypto. They hear that people can invest in crypto and make a bunch of money. Threat actors are taking advantage of that and they're sending folks messages, you know, in their DMs on whatever social media saying, hey, if you just put X amount of money in my wallet, you'll get Y amount of money back to your wallet. And, mm-hmm. and it's all a scheme, right? And I don't even want to think about the millions that they're making with those little bits of money that they're draining off of people. And so it, it gives me a lot of joy that we shut these people down at scale. But the scale that I see them operating at makes me know we need a lot more security professionals in our industry to continue to battle this arms race. Yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about the IoT. We, we call it XIoT, Tammy, just simply because there's so many of these devices. And you've got the enterprise IoT, the usual suspects, right? Your printers, cameras, phones. But it also, you know, door controllers and all kinds of things. And you've got kind of the network side. I mean, a layer two switch is an IoT device. Uh, you can't put, you know, endpoint, you know, security on there. And, you know, but you also have things like KVM switches and network attached storage and all. Then you've got all the OT stuff. Brian was just talking about one of the exploits there, like a, a big botnet ring that targets OT devices, you know, PLCs and HMIs and pumps and all those kinds of things. But it, what's interesting about that, I'm interested to get your thoughts on that, is is you talked earlier about just the way the threats have changed and the sophistication of them over the years. And you think of how sophisticated they are now. And then you look at those devices today, and the state of those devices is like you're back in 1990, right? The average age of firmware on those things is over seven years old. I mean, could you imagine a phone where you didn't update the firmware? You know, it's like... It's like running NT 3.5.1 or something. You know, it's, they're all default passwords. Credentials are all default. They're loaded with vulnerabilities. Most of these things ship with them kindly out of the box. 
you know, and so you've got this interesting kind of paradox. You've got a very sophisticated threat actors with these devices that are like back in the nineties and, and, and their state. Is that something that, you, that worries you? Is that something you see with the kind of devices that you're dealing with? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. In short, it's terrifying. Right. You you <laughs> describe the situation so well. And and I affectionately call it the the Internet of Insecure Things. And it, mm-hmm. it, it's for all the reasons that you listed, right? Some don't phone home. Some will never have updates. Just because a risk posture was okay even a year ago, it may not be okay a year later. Mm-hmm. If, if mm-hmm. I can get some kind of network connectivity or even if it's air-gapped, right? There have been proven situations where something is air-gapped or DMZ and folks still got into it. And it's a foothold into your network, right? If it's connected to the rest of your systems via a network, it is a potential foothold. So, you know, the the first guidance that I always give, and it's not a silver bullet, we all know in security, there are no silver bullets. That's why we Mm -hmm. need belts and suspenders, many layers of protections and everything that we do. But, you know, the, the thing that I do, I do have IoT devices in my home. I'm a tech geek, of course I do. One, I research research, research, research any device before I will bring it in my home. There's usually these days oodles of security articles. Folks are very interested in Internet of Things and the security associated. Look up Google what the security posture is for the device that you're thinking about bringing into your home and go in with eyes wide open of the security risks that you're bringing into your Mm -hmm. home because there's a risk with everything that you use. So understand the risk and then manage the risk appropriate to the posture that you want. For myself, when I look at the risk, I want devices that regularly phone home on the Internet that are getting patches regularly. Ideally, I review what type of data does this IoT device gather and send and what type of data? Does it store in any type of cloud? Do I have an opportunity to not store in a cloud? Do I have control over the retention of that storage in the cloud? If you're a bit more of an advanced user, I also segregate my network. Uh, I will only put IoT devices on a guest network that I've stood up that has extra protections. I also like to use Wireshark on my own network. Never use it on anybody else's network. That's not legal, <laughs> but you can use it on your own network. And I do so. I like to use Wireshark and do some packet sniffing relative to that guest network and see exactly what that IoT device, if I can see. First of all, I like to see, can I see it? Is it encrypted? Because that's going to, you know, that's another kind of security step for me for this particular IoT vendor. Can I, how, how far can I sniff your traffic? And uh, when I sniff your traffic, what are you actually sending? versus what you've told me that you send, right? I patch the device regularly. I also will research the devices regularly, all of the devices on my network, and decide, does this meet my risk posture anymore, right? Because mm-hmm. things change over time. Maybe something that was secure a few months ago is proven now not to be so much. So those are those are some of my recommendations, just so that you go in eyes wide open. Uh, if if some of those techniques are a little beyond, you know, your your capabilities, call your tech friend. I'm sure they would be delighted to help you or show you and talk <laughs> to you until your eyes glaze over about how insecure uh, your particular IoT device is. And then you decide what the right level of security is for you, right? I'm I'm not here to dictate to other people what the right level of safety or security is for them. Mine's a little bit different just because of of what I know and what I do. But, you know, ask your friends to help guide you if you if you have doubts uh, about security, especially with your IoT devices. What I don't advise is just go buy the cheapest device that you can and hook it onto your network. Like, it, that's just a recipe for disaster. Go in with eyes wide open. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, those are good points. You know, it's funny that that line between enterprise and consumer, there are so many products that are used on the consumer side in XIoT that are also used on the on the enterprise side, security cameras, layer two switches, just, yeah. just a couple examples. Mm-hmm. But I know after the holidays, there's always this big influx because people got all these cool new devices <laughs> and they're like, hey, I'm going to take this to work with me. And now it's yes. all plugged into the network. And, you know, the, the IT security team is like, what, what's all this stuff? But one of the things that that I think John and I found interesting now that we've been, you know, we, we recently published a report, the trends, threats and trends for XIoT, and we published this in late 2022. It was based on like like five years of research and several million devices that we analyzed in enterprises. And I, I think the most compelling stat for me, and there was a lot of interesting stats, but there's about three to five XIoT devices per employee in an organization. So an employee of 10, a company of 10,000 people has somewhere between 30 to 50,000. And you're usually not going to guess that because, oh, I forgot about all the voice over IP phones. Oh, I forgot about the 3,000 cameras and all the digital door locks and all the KVM switches. And nobody has a good inventory around these. And probably the one that stands out in my mind the most are security cameras. We work with large financials and manufacturing and, and, and gaming and casinos, for example, casinos. They have security cameras, which as far as I can tell, all they do is watch other security cameras. They have so many security cameras. And, you know, for them, it's spying is certainly an issue. If somebody could get access to those devices and record the audio and the video, um, that's certainly an issue for large businesses, cameras in boardrooms or manufacturing facilities, defense, things of this nature. Uh, crypto jacking is another one because they're just Linux servers. At the end, you log into these things, they're Ubuntu, they're BusyBox. It's a Linux server. You can load tools, you can compile stuff. And in many cases, are more powerful than a laptop. So I can I can go ahead and mine crypto on these devices. But what I think was really interesting, and this is kind of, you know, you never really get to say that much. Hey, the, the United States government did the right thing when it came to cybersecurity. You don't get to say that as much as you'd like. But a couple of years ago, the United States banned certain cameras, Huawei, Hikvision, HKE, and a few others for use in government facilities, as well as government contractors. Because when you turn that camera, you say, stop recording, it turns the light from green to red, but it still records, it still grabs video, it still grabs audio, and it streams it to a remote location for analysis. Again, these are cameras that are quite popular. And in fact, one of the most popular cameras on Amazon for several years came shipped out of the box with this type of malware on there that allowed this type of activity. So fast forward to, I think it was November of 2022, the US government finally said, look, look guys, these these are just too dangerous, these devices. We're actually making it illegal now to import or to sell with the United States. And I was like, wow, they really stepped up. I didn't expect that. I thought Mm -hmm. more regulatory mandates and, you know, this or that, but no, they actually made it illegal and you can't get these devices anymore. You can still find them all over the rest of the world. People are still using them, but now I'm starting to see other uh, countries kind of follow suit. And just yesterday, Australia, uh, it was in CNN news or CNN business. They said, Australia is purging Chinese made cameras from all department of defense uh, systems and just because of that that massive risk. And not only the spying capability, but the fact that, let's say I get in through a phishing attack and I'm on your laptop. I don't wanna stay there because you have all these security controls. I wanna pivot from there to a camera, to a printer, to something else where you're not really paying attention. And I know I can get in because you probably have a default password or no password. If that's if you did change it, there's tons of vulnerabilities. So I know I can probably get into at least 10, 15,000 systems to hide. 
And then they're attacking IT and cloud assets and siphoning that data out. This is such a huge backdoor. And we're seeing cyber criminals and nation states saying, this is the new new. They're not banging their head against the front door and the firewalls and the IPSs and the stores and all that. They're saying, hey, you got 50,000 unsecured Linux boxes. I'm pretty sure that's the easiest way to get into your organization. So my question that's buried in this diatribe of talking about these cameras is you've, you've worked at a senior level in security for quite some time across these different organizations. Is that threat? The fact that these XIOT Linux boxes in this mass volume are sitting throughout the enterprises, do you think that that's being grasped by one, the security professionals in the organization, and two, by you know business leaders in this organization? Mm-hmm. Do they realize that there's this big back door, or are we, like John said, are we back in the 1990s and we still have to evangelize and increase awareness and education as it relates to this, this big hole? Well, I'm going to do the the typical security professional thing and say, it depends. It depends <laughs> on the organization. It depends on the security professional. My humble opinion is I tend to lean more towards John's opinion uh, in, in that it, you know, we are not where we need to be as a security profession in general and as an industry in really being skeptical. I, I still remember, and, and frankly, there's still a lot of companies that support BYOD, bring your own device, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. still don't have great controls relative to all those devices that they've allowed now to get onto their network. I, you know, I've seen organizations that have allowed these BYODs to be on their network with no guest password, no reset of guest password. Who knows what devices are attached from whom on that network, depending on how close they could get to your network. Um, right. So I, I don't think folks have one, in my humble opinion, I don't think folks have helped humans in the organization understand safety holistically and and really continue to real-time educate employees in their corporate life as well as in their personal life the things that we need to to really think about to keep ourselves our family and our our corporation safe Mm -hmm. so that's part of the the trust and education i also feel that organizations haven't done enough of the verify what is on my network? Do I understand everything that's on my network? And if I don't, have I kicked it off until I can understand what is on my network? What is the risk posture and how I contain that risk posture? Because you said it incredibly well, Brian. All I've got to do is get one foothold, just one, and then figure out how to pivot laterally. And then if I can find a special place to go, I can take you down right? Don't give them the opportunity. Don't give them the foothold. Be really thoughtful of anything that you're letting onto your network. Be able to validate that risk posture and act on it. And I I don't know that we've done that well enough, to your point, in the internet of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and you touched on something there, Tammy, which is very interesting. You kind of referred to kind of this collision. It's like a double-sided coin of the actual threat to the data, the business, and humans, yes, the threat to humans, and I mean, do you see that? And, and an example of this is recently, very recent. This is like ripped from the headlines. A very prominent city, I won't say the city, found that the district attorney in that city had his team deploy cameras. And as Brian referred to, what people don't often realize is these cameras actually capture audio. Okay. Most people don't quite think of that. They actually installed these cameras in the DA office outside and around specifically to not only watch, but to listen. And it was just discovered, right? 
So when you think about that and the fact that, frankly, the, a good majority of these cameras, and we see them all, actually record audio. This is where the human element comes in. And it, obviously, it's out in the public forum. And Brian referred to the, the fact that you know there's a ban on these devices because they're spying on you. Um, but most people think that that spying is just simply capturing the video. Sometimes they don't understand it's actually listening to them, right? So this is now happening where you, it's not just outside on a street. It could be inside in a building. It could be in the district attorney's office. And this is now where you might get this collision of kind of the security threat and the privacy and the human element of it. Is that, I mean, is that something you see that is a factor in just the progression of the awareness, the all of that, the, the human side of it? Does that come into play? Yeah, I, you know, my opinion is I think a lot of folks think, Somebody else is thinking about that. You know, somebody else mm -hmm. is making sure that we're safe and secure. You you can't assume that. You really can't. There are so many different methods that unfortunately threat actors are trying to take advantage of, and especially trying to take advantage of human goodwill, that we've got to do a better job as security professionals. We can't protect them all. We have got to mm -hmm. teach them how to protect themselves. And I believe that's in real-time training within corporations of the great IoT lessons that you all are teaching on this type of podcast, doing regular, you know, fishing type of exercises within your organization to teach people these types of things before they really happen to them. Because it's so, mm. I have to talk to people when they've had the worst day of their lives so often after they have been taken by a threat actor. And the first thing they say is, I just wish I would have known. I wish I would have known how to protect myself, right? And that's on all of us as security professionals to demystify what it is that we know and to just offer it constantly in consumable ways that people can help up their own security posture. We all play a part in this. There are not enough security professionals to protect everyone else. And there are far more threat actors than there are security professionals. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, far more targets than there are security professionals. So we've got to help everyone understand and come up with more scalable protections to help the humans protect themselves. And that's something that, that I would love to see every company, every security professional, everyone lean into is just being more giving of our knowledge and more giving of our capabilities to scale up security knowledge and tooling for folks that are not as savvy with technology or security as we are. How are we breaking it down for them and giving them tools that help them protect themselves? We shouldn't lecture them. We shouldn't judge them. What we should do is try to educate and help them. Yeah. And, and, and let's be very honest. The, uh, amount of security experts and tools and consultants and outsourced services that a large financial corporation can hire juxtaposed to um, Bob's Bagels down the street, which has a bunch of computers and some IoT stuff and some things to protect. It's, it's quite different. And they might get hit by the same types of fraudsters trying to do the same mm -hmm. types of malicious things, right? So every everybody needs to be aware of this. Well, well, Tammy, we we could talk for hours. Your your stories are so fascinating. What I like most about them is you can tell they're they're all nested in these real life conversations and incidents that you've been dealing with for so long. And and I love the people perspective you bring to this. Um, but as we wrap up, just one one last question. 
And uh, you, you've, you've alluded to some of this throughout the conversation, which I love, but what sage words of advice can you give to our, our listeners out there, whether it's uh, their work concerned about their individual security at home or a medium or a, a large size organization? Yeah. You know, my guidance is always trust, but verify. I don't want everyone to walk around being paranoid about everything. I, I do that enough. But I I do want people to be a little bit skeptical, to just be a little bit thoughtful before you click the link, before you give away your very special information like your social security number or your login details. Be skeptical of who that person is on the other side. If you're not looking them in the eyes, if, if you're not physically with them, it could be someone that you do not want to hand that information to or that you do not want to interact with. If you even have a moment of doubt, just pause, just take a pause and think about what you're doing before you act. There are so many people that that I speak to after a security event, and that's one of the biggest reflections is, gosh, why did I click that link? Why did I talk to that person? I should have known better. I should have just waited a moment, right? So often threat actors will say things to try to get you to quickly act. No, that's a that's a clue. If somebody's telling you you've got to immediately do something, don't immediately do it. Take a take a step back, take a click, and just think about it. Maybe go talk to a friend about it. Right? Can ask for some guidance. Taking that extra minute to think something through can be worth a lot of avoided regret. Just mm-hmm. be a little thoughtful before you act. Yep. Well, wow, very practical but powerful advice. Fantastic, insightful discussion. Tammy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks to my co-host, Brian. But Tammy Hawkins, thanks very much for being our guest today. Thank you, John and Brian. I, I assure you the honor was mine, and I will come talk to you anytime you will have me here. Thank you so much for what you are doing. We will have you back. There's no question. And remember, everybody, the IoT Security Podcast is brought to you by Phosphorus the leading provider of proactive, full-scope security for the extended Internet of Things. And until we meet again, I'm John Becky, And I'm Brian Contis. We'll see you next time on Phosphorus Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Security Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe so you can join us again. While you're at it, leave a review. Find out more about IoT security and the podcast at phosphorus.io. See you next time on the IoT Security Podcast.